due to our Easter celebrations um, and a guest speaker a few weeks ago, we've had a few breaks from 1 Samuel. So I thought it might be worth just giving us a quick recap to get everybody on the same page. So at the start of 1 Samuel, we meet Hannah. Hannah is heartbroken. She is lamenting because she cannot conceive a child. She is crying out to God for help, and she humbles herself before God and asks and, and vows to God that if he would give her a son, he will hand that son over to the Lord to serve in his house. God blesses Hannah with a son. Hannah then faithfully follows through on her vow and dedicates Samuel to be raised by Eli. At the end of chapter 2, uh, we move away from Samuel and we hear about Israel's wicked leadership. The high priest Eli, he does know the Lord, but this hasn't passed on to his sons. His sons, who are priests in the house of the Lord, are abusing their position to get food that is offered to God, so stealing from God, and then sleeping with women who come to the temple. Eli gives a very ineffective and rather weak rebuke to his sons, but does little else to stop them. So then the Lord announces his judgment on Eli's family line. He would not abide these evil and sinful men and the Lord says, to, uh, Lord says in 1 Samuel 2, verse 34, What happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be a sign to you. They will both die on the same day. Chapter 3 then moves back to Samuel, and we see that God is now speaking directly to Samuel. God tells Samuel all about the promise to destroy Eli's family, and Samuel is taught a valuable lesson that is important to tell God's message truthfully, even when it's bad news. Samuel then tells Eli exactly what God has told him, and Samuel grows and matures as a prophet. And that brings us to chapter four, where we move away from Samuel again. So I'm gonna pray and then we'll get stuck in. Father, as we come to this passage tonight, speak your word and your purposes through me Send your spirit to open our ears to hear and open our hearts to receive your word in our lives tonight. Father, we pray all this in your name. Amen. Well, are you good in a crisis? Can you take that second to step back, assess a situation, and make the right decision? My wife, Michelle, she's an emergency nurse in A&E, and in a medical crisis, She's pretty unflappable. She's very unfazed. Early on in our relationship, very early on, we were on a walk on the Bangor Coastal Path, and there was a man cycling towards us, and he hit a pothole, and he flipped the bike and flew off the bike and landed in front of us. And I was still standing there pretty sort of just assessing the situation, and she was straight over. She was down beside him, and she was going through all the checks systematically. She... Um, she went through all the checks systematically, reassuring him and keeping him still. Now, turns out he was fine. He just had some pretty big bruises um, and a couple of scrapes. But in a medical crisis, Michelle is brilliant. But why is she so good? Well, she's been well-trained, and she's practiced her procedures and her skills, and honed her skills, and has a wealth of experience in her years working as an emergency nurse. Michelle relies on her training and her expertise and her experience to help her through when dealing with a medical crisis. 
In our passage tonight, the Israelites find themselves in a real crisis. They've just been defeated by the Philistines, and they have to decide on their next move. Now, I wonder if you think the Israelites are good in a crisis, so we'll have a wee look at it. Something you might not know about me is that I'm a little bit of a history nerd. I love history. I love listening to history podcasts, reading history books. I did spend a 40, uh, 45 minutes of my life watching a video on the wars between the Philistines and the Egyptians. So, a little bit of a history nerd. Now, ancient history and origins of people particularly fascinate me. So unsurprisingly, when I came to preparing this sermon, I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole. But we'll, don't worry, I'll not bore you on all the, the tactics. But anyway, what was I looking for? What did I want to know? Well, I wanted to know who were the Philistines. In our modern culture, in our modern times, to call someone a Philistine is to imply that they're pretty uncultured, or they're maybe a, an ignorant person, or they're maybe a bit simple. But the truth is, the Philistines were far from uncultured or simple. The Philistines were a sea-based people group who came had origins in ancient Greece. They settled the coastal regions just east of the Israelites, and they'd had several wars with the Egyptians, and they had these five coastal cities. And these five coastal cities were part of a great trade network where they traded in art, in technology, in science, um, and from all the civilizations across the Mediterranean. And from this trade, they could sustain a more professional army. They could get the latest weapons and the cutting edge in tactics. Contrast this with our landlocked farming people of Israel, who relied mostly on just mustering villagers into big war bands, gathering whatever weaponry they could find. So all this is to say that the Philistines, in human terms, were a far superior army to the Israelites. So you might think it's unsurprising then that the Philistines went out and defeated the Israelites. The Philistines, after all, were a superior military power. But the Israelites have defeated superior military powers before. When we, uh, before, when Moses sent men to scout into Canaan, they reported back the strength of the people who dwelt there. So in Numbers 13, we read, but the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people, they are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. And they said, the land we explored devours all those living in it. All the people we saw there were of great size. And yet, in the book of Joshua, the Israelites go into Canaan, and God helps them defeat everyone before them. But at the start of our story, the Israelites are defeated. There are 4,000 men dead. They have withdrawn to their camp, and they are licking their wounds. They can't keep going out to battle and losing like this. They're in a crisis. Something needs to change. And you can imagine the war council. I have a picture of a war council here, but it probably didn't look like that. But this is what came up when I went into Google Images. So you can imagine them all sitting around. Maybe you like to imagine the American uh, general with the cigar talking about nuking people. But maybe you think about that, or maybe you think whatever. But the war council gathers, and they're coming up with a solution. Maybe one commander says, oh, we need to go around the local villages and rally up some more men, get, get the overwhelming numbers. Another one goes, no, 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 we need to focus on archers and slingers and, and uh, weaken the enemy before we attack. And a third goes, no, 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 no. We need to do a, some sort of flanking maneuver. We need to put all our men on one side and, and overwhelm them, put them on the back foot. And then one commander speaks out. 
verse 3. Let us bring the ark of the Lord of the covenant, or the ark, sorry. Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, so that he may go out with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. Now, the ark of the covenant was the representation of the throne of God in Israel. Kept in the holy place in the tabernacle, the people never saw it. Only the high priest entered and saw the ark, and he only entered once a year. Before he entered, he would have to wash himself to make sure he wasn't unclean or contaminated, and then he would have to burn incense to cover his eyes from the view of the Lord, and he would have to bring in a blood offering to atone for his sins. Then, even then, after doing all that, he would wear a robe which had small bells around the hem and a rope around his ankle. All this was because God cannot abide sin or evil. So if the high priest failed to do all these things correctly or was hiding some great sin, the, um, God would have uh, strike him down and the other priests would hear the bells ringing and they would drag him out. So the ark is not something that should be branded about carelessly. And the elders wanted to bring the representation to the th of the throne of God out of the Holy of Holies, cover it, and bring it to battle with them. They hoped it would give them confidence that God was really with them. I think there's a picture of the ark being moved. Yep, so that is an artist's impression of the ark being moved towards the battlefield. And in one way, the Israelites get it very, very right. They know that they're facing a much stronger and superior enemy. And the elders rightly sense that they need God's help to win the battle. And after all, the ark has won them great victories before. The Israelites had marched around Jericho seven times with the ark out in front of them, and the Lord had destroyed the walls and given them a great victory. So let's have a closer look at the fall of Jericho in Joshua 6. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horn in front of the ark on the seventh day. March around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast of the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout and then the, uh, and then the wall of the city will collapse. The army will go up everyone straight in. Joshua listened to the Lord and followed his commands. In Samuel, or in 1 Samuel, instead of humbly repenting and seeking God, Israel, the Israelites don't consult God. They don't consider his plans. They just want victory. By doing this, the Israelites are trying to force God to fight for them, believing that he would never allow his ark to be captured by the Philistines, that he would destroy the Philistines to protect his own reputation and his glory. So they bring the ark from Shiloh out to the camp at Ebenezer. And who's leading that ark? Well, it's Hophni and Phinus, the corrupted sons who have been stealing from God and sleeping with women. And when they arrive at the camp, the Israelites give out this great, great shout, and the ground shakes. It's sort of reminiscent of the shout they gave at the, at the fall of Jericho. Verse five, when the ark of the Lord's covenant went into the camp, all Israel raised a great shout and the ground shook. 
And we might be tempted as we read this to think like the Philistines did, that this reaction is a sign that God really is present in the camp of the Israelites. But he's not at all. All the noise, all the shouting, the stamping of feet, the great excitement, it seems impressive. It seems powerful, but it's empty. Why? Because God's not in it. So the Israelites go out to battle with the ark in front of them. They're all fired up. They're ready to win. But what happens? Well, we look at verse 10 and 11. So the Philistines thought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died out of the frying pan and into the fire. The Israelites have gone from bad to worse. This time, instead of using, losing 4,000 men, they lose 30,000 men. And not only that, but they've lost the Ark of the Covenant, the physical representation of God's presence in Israel. The Ark was a good thing. It was given to them by God. It was an essential part of their worship. But as one commentator put it, the Israelites had made an idol of the ark. They were trusting in the ark of the God rather than the God of the ark. And we too can often make idols out of good things, just like the Israelites. But God will not tolerate idols, and he will break us from our idolatry, break us from idolatry by removing those idols and turn us back to him. We need to be careful not to make idols out of good things. Well, were the Israelites good in the crisis? I think you'll agree with me, they weren't. But they were seriously, sorry, I think you were good with me, they're not, but they were seriously out of step with God. And it's not surprising, with such corrupted spiritual leaders who were full of pride and self-importance believing themselves above God's law and thinking they were better than God. The priests who were supposed to supervise the ark were killed in battle. God promised that the two sons of Eli would die on the same day as proof of his ultimate judgment on the house of Eli. And now that proof had come. There's an important lesson to learn here. As we go through life, as we meet challenges, as we go through crisis, we need to cling to the Lord. We need to rely on him. We need to sink, seek out his plans and seek out his purposes for us. We need to get in step with the Lord, humble ourselves, repent of our sinfulness and trust him. He will see us through. Now this can be easier said than done sometimes. When we face crisis, when our whole world is turned upside down by the death of a loved one, when we face money issues, when we struggle with loneliness, when we feel burnt out or worn down, when the last thing we feel like doing is lifting our Bible, he will see us through if we cling to him. If you remember the story of Michelle and the medical crisis, what does she do? She remembers her training, she relies on her experience, she practices her procedures and skills, and so when she's in a crisis, all that stuff, it's like muscle memory. They're not, she's not sitting there thinking, what do I do next? It's instinctive. 
And so much like um, Michelle training to be in a medical crisis, as Christians, we can prepare ourselves for the challenges that life's going to throw at us. You know, we can train ourselves by, to rely on God when crisis strikes. We can do this by building our relationship with him, by praying, speaking to God, by being in fellowship with other Christians, by studying God's word, by learning more about him, and by allowing the Spirit to convict us of our sins and turn us to repentance, and reflecting on the times that he's been faithful in our lives in the past. If we are actively living for God in the everyday, when crisis hits, our instinct will be to run to him, and he will see us through. It is never too late to turn to God and ask for his help. So if you're going through crisis tonight, can I encourage you to seek the God who loves you? Now, I know what you're thinking. I'm only on verse 11, but don't worry, I'm wrapping up. <laughs> we're, going to get, uh, we're not going to be here all night. At the end of the passage, it gets pretty bleak. Thousands of men are dead. The Ark of the Covenant is stolen. And God is fulfilling his judgment on Eli's family. His sons... They've both been killed, and Eli gets the uh, and Eli then dies later alongside them, as does his daughter-in-law. Eli's family line will no longer serve as God's priests. Even the name given to Eli's grandson is pretty bleak. Ichabod, the God, the glory has departed. The glory of the Lord had departed in one sense. But the glory left when Israel stopped repenting and trusting God and started superstitiously trusting the ark. How could God allow something so terrible to happen? Firstly, he allowed it as, his right, as a righteous judgment on Israel, as the nation and the family of Eli. They simply received what they deserved. Secondly, God allowed it as a correction to the nation of Israel, so that they would not trust in the ark of God, but instead trust the God of the ark. Finally, though it seemed so terrible to man, was it so terrible to God? At that moment, did God wring his hands in heaven? Was he worried about how things were gonna turn out? Did he worry about his reputation? Was he worried about the Philistines and the Philistines' gods? Looking at it this way, the glory had not departed at all. Instead, God was just beginning to show his glory. It's important for us to remember that God is sovereign over all, and he will see us through a crisis. Let us pray. Father, thank you that you are a God, the God of all creation, and yet you want to know us in a personal way. Thank you that you care about what we are going through, the crisis, and the challenges of our lives. Father, help us to turn to you, to cling to your promises in these times. Remind us of your goodness and your sovereignty. Help us to trust in you and when the future seems uncertain. Correct us when we stray from you and keep us in your loving arms. In your name we pray. Amen. <laughs>